Let's get into the Word of God and continue our worship as we study the Bible together. This is, it's one of my favorite parts of the week is just the moments right before I get to get up and preach. I love to preach. It's a, it's a privilege. It's, it's the best kind of work, I think, to be able to do this. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, and we're going to finish this chapter off. It's two verses left in a section that I have preserved as a unit of thought because I think it was important for us to do that. It seems like the text kind of unfolded this way for us. It's under the theme of take up your cross, take up your cross, part one, part two, and part three. This is the third part, and these last two verses are a bridge into the next chapter, which is the Mount Transfiguration. So there's a there's sort of a lead-in from what we're learning today to where we're going, but I didn't want to rush over what's here, and I'm glad I didn't because there's a lot on my heart um, this morning, I think, from the text. Taking up your cross is, uh, we've been learning more of a mindset than something we will definitely do physically, physically to take up your cross or the cross beam or to be posted by Rome meant execution. It was a death sentence for sure. It was the death sentence that Christ was claiming that he was going to undergo. Prophetically, he was announcing to his disciples, verse 21, he says that he must go to Jerusalem. You can see that there, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is what he's in sobriety telling his disciples, and his disciples are duly sobered by this death note that he is giving to himself. I must go. I must go to the cross. Peter had none of it and rebuked Jesus, taking him aside, but Jesus turned the tables and rebuked him, saying, get behind me, Satan, verse 23, you're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You're not thinking like I want you to think. That's what Jesus is saying. You're not in a deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me mindset, because that's what God is calling me to do. He's calling me to sacrifice myself, fulfilling all of the prophecies that Jesus had to die as a substitute for our sins, to pay for our sins, something he had to do. Peter didn't understand that. He had no time for that. And the satanic sort of hindrance of Peter was leveled by Christ where he said, you are setting your mind on yourself, on the things of men. How do we get out of that mindset? Because we're so Peter-like. Hey, we don't want to suffer. We don't want to follow you in this way and bring this kind of heaviness on our life. And so verse 24 begins to break through the fog of that deluded mindset where we think we can have Christ without a cross. And we can't do that. We have to go into a disciple's mindset that says, I'm willing to die on the cross. I'm willing to give my life for Christ. It's self-denial. Self-denial is costly. What will it cost you? Verse 24, it costs you your identity. 
Jesus said in verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Self-denial. You're called to be invisible behind the shadow of the cross. You're called to put Christ first and go in the background. Secondly, verse 25 says, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you're into self-saving, self-preservation, living all about you, then you're going to lose your life. You're, you're not really following Christ with your life. That means that you're not exercising saving faith in Christ. You're losing um, your salvation by not losing your life. It's a salvation you never gained in the first place. And then finally, you lose your soul. Verse 26, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? If you're concerned about saving yourself for heaven through religion, through accolades, through rewards, through believing that you are worthy of heaven when you really are not, then you're going to lose your soul. You're going to find yourself in a negotiation with God where you're saying, how much can I give you to still get in heaven? And it won't work. So self-denial is costly. It's invisibility in your identity. It's saying my life is not my own anymore. It's yours. And my soul and my eternity is entrusted to you. But with what's lost, there is something that's dramatically gained. And that's what verses 27 and 28 speak of. If you were just, if I was just speaking from uh, this little sticky note, this is what I wrote last night in summary of the whole sermon. Why self-denial? Why deny yourself for Christ? And it's, if you've listened to the last two sermons, you realize it's a heavy denial. This is not just lip service. This is a, a life commitment to say, it's all about you now, Lord. Why do that? You need to learn what you're saved from, and that's verse 27, and then you need to understand what you're saved for, and that's verse 28. First of all, self-denial is rewarding. It's rewarding in terms of what you are saved from. You're saved from judgment. It's a reward to be saved from what we deserve because of our sin. Jesus is describing not only what we lose, but what we Gain and it's immeasurable, it's an immeasurable gain. It's Romans 8 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is what's spoken of here is wrath judgment that is coming. Look at verse 27. It says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Because of our sin, and because God is holy, and because his holiness is what we have offended, there has to be a just recompense. And what is spoken of here by the Lord is that if you... Do not lose your life for Christ and your soul is forfeited. In verse 26, it's forfeited. Then you are going to undergo wrath judgment that's coming. The son of man will repay each person according to what he has done. Wrath is the point of verse 27. 
wrath. Avoiding Jesus' wrath is the ultimate motivator for losing your life in the first place. Why do you lose your life for Christ? So that you can gain this promise that you will be spared from the wrath of God. The gospel is saving. And when you hear the gospel being saving, you probably think to yourself, well, that's true. I've been saved from my sins. And that's true. We're thankful for that. Oh, but let's take it a level deeper. I've been saved from the guilt of my sin. I felt so heavy about all the things that I've done. And the Lord has washed that away from my life. And I've been delivered from that. We think about that, don't we? Well, let's take it one level deeper. I've been saved from going to hell forever for my sins, the consequences of my sin. Let me just say it in the way that Jesus says it here. Since the Son of Man's going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, this is not some kind of highfalutin glory where you're just hearing like the angels sing in heaven praises about, you know, being there. This is wrath judgment coming in laser-like fashion where God is going to come with his fiery angels to repay every person, each person according to what he's done. This is being saved from wrath. This is being saved from Christ. You say, I thought we're saved by Christ. I thought Christ saves us. It's true. If you become a Christian, you are saved by Christ. He is your savior. But if you do not become a Christian... If you're unwilling to lose your life for Christ, then you are in the crosshairs of this same Savior who's coming to exercise judgment and wrath upon you. When you're saved, you're saved from God's wrath that you deserve. How does this work? Well, I remember being a kid and when I would um, do wrong or be disobedient, I was kind of a hyperactive kid. Kind of strong-willed, I can't imagine that, right? But that was me, and sometimes I would cross my mom, you know, with a, a word or something, you know, in the house. And, you know, there, there was judgment that would come from my mother, but really the greater judgment was the promise that wait till your father's coming home. And that's what struck dread in my heart. Well, that's the same kind of dread on an immeasurably heavier Note that Jesus is striking to say, you need to dread the son of man, which is Jesus speaking for himself, the son of man coming back one day to repay everyone who is unrepentant of their sins. Understanding what we've been forgiven from is such an amazing thing. Understanding that our sin puts us in a deficit with God and that we by being saved, have been preserved from wrath. And we've been preserved from judgment that's eternal judgment. That's what self-denial brings us. That's why we would deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus, is to live exempt from God's wrath. It's incredible. Let me make it more personal to you. Depression has been defined as seeing yourself in light of what you believe you deserve. This is what I should have had. This is what I wish I had. This is what I'm still not having. This is what I want so badly. Everything in terms of where you are and what you believe that you deserve, all of that is depression. That's the weight of depression. If you flip that on its head, 
Joy has been described as you being here and seeing the hell that you deserve because of your sin. And then everything else that you have, that you have been given by forgiveness, where you have been um, preserved from that hell, all of that is joy in your life. Understanding that you, what you deserve is not what's given to you. It's unspeakably great to think this way. People forfeit their souls all the time. Verse 26 says so. People, people go for the profit of the world and they forfeit their soul. It's like Demas who goes after the love of this world. They're rejecting Christ. William Barclay said it's a man who selfishly hugs life to himself. That man whose first concern is his own safety, his own security, his own comfort in heaven's eyes is a failure. It's a failure. Someone who is failing. That's someone who loves the world and the world is not loving them back. They attempt to barter for their own soul after they're on the other side of heaven and it's too late. Verse 27 says, the son of man is coming for these people with angels, his angels in glory. Again, these are not angels that are singing some encouraging chorus. These are those who are coming in wrath. And the believer looks at this with sobriety. John in the book of Revelation ate the scroll that represents Jesus coming back. And it says in Revelation 10, 10, I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. There's a a bittersweet dynamic to understanding God's judgment. In one sense, you say, I'm exempt from God's judgment. Woo, I'm free from the wrath of God. But on the other hand, you ache for those who are yet unrepentant. And you also know that there's a general accountability that comes to all of us in the end. It says so. It says to each one, to each one, the son of man comes to repay each person according to what he's done. What does that mean? Well, in 2 Corinthians 5, 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We fear the Lord. We understand there's a resurrection of life and a resurrection of death. John 5, 25 through 29 speaks of this, a resurrection of life and a resurrection of judgment. There's a separation of sheep and goats. And that dynamic is, is heavy to us. Those who bear good fruit are those who are affirmed as believers, as opposed to those who bear bad fruit, who are cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew 7, verses 16 to 23. In verse 21, it shows that pivot point where there's a decision of heart whether or not someone is truly saved or not. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't I speak for you? Yes, And cast out demons, didn't I exercise authority in your name and do many works in your name? This is a person who's not ashamed to speak for Christ. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That measure of doubt in the hearts of many where they're like, I don't know for sure that I'm a believer. That makes the idea of future judgment bittersweet and difficult. Everyone's going to have to give an account, even believers, Romans 14, 12. So then each 
of us will give an account of himself to God. 1 Corinthians 3.13, each one's work will become manifest for the day of the Lord to dis- will disclose it. It'll be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 2 Corinthians 5.10 speaks of the judgment seat, the Bema seat, and will receive what is due, what is done in the body, whether good or evil. But then there's a judgment for all unbelievers, all the rest. So there's this one judgment where we're held to an account but then there's the judgment for everybody else, 2 Corinthians 1, 8, and 9. The inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance of those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. And to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you who have believed. This is the binary dynamic that you have the saved. They're going to be held account in the end when the day, on the day of the Lord. And then you have the unsaved who are going into eternal fire and judgment. Faith without works is dead. If you're, if you're saying you're a believer and you have nothing to prove that you're a believer then you need to examine yourself. Even the demons believe and shudder. Demons aren't saved, but they, they, they have a knowledge of God, but they don't have a changed life or a changed heart. They can't have that. In the church of Thyatira, there's a warning even within the church to examine yourself. Revelation 2.23 says, All the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. It's an examination, Revelation 20, 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades up, gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Revelation 22, 12, behold, I am coming, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. It's heavy. It's supposed to be heavy. This is a heavy reminder that judgment is coming. Why would you live in self-denial? Why would you follow Christ even to the death? Because you've given your heart to him. And by doing so, you gain the assurance that you are exempt from this wrath, this repayment. In Daniel 7, this is one of the heaviest sections of scripture regarding the end times. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. This is where... Jesus gets the title son of man for himself. Do you realize that's the most used title by Christ for himself? He designates himself as the son of man, which means he's the incarnate one. It speaks to his humanness, but it also means that he is the one who is coming in judgment. Verse nine, it says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. This is God. And Daniel is this prophet and he's saying, I see four different beasts in this area. He's looking across an entire history of mankind of different rulers who are antichrist, beast figures throughout history and ultimately is going to climax with the coming of Christ. It says, 
His clothing was white as snow, his hair of his head, pure wool, and his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. All the angels are before God and his throne, and it's a wheel judgment of burning fire around the throne. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, and the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words and the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. So Satan is, is done away with and condemned. And then you have the other antichrist rulers, but their lives were prolonged for a season and time, a time I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. This is the reference to Christ's return. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Christ is the son of man. He is the Messiah. Here he is in humble, veiled flesh humanity. Philippians 2 talks about him coming in the first incarnation as um, in veiled glory in the first advent. And yet his glory is going to be manifest in an indomitable display of wrath, judgment on all who would not believe, all who would stay focused on self, all who would just hug the world and try to hang on and be satisfied by here and now. Those who would not follow Christ at all costs are under this wrath, judgment. Glory here is not a happy glory. Verse 27, the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father, meaning Christ and the angels are representing the totality of God's nature, character, and attributes to include his wrath, his justice, and his fury against unbelievers. It's an indomitable glory of the Father's righteousness and holy justice being answered by Christ, who is the mighty warrior who's coming to exact a precise repayment for the sins. It's a recompense for all the sins that have been committed against God's holiness to each person according to what he has done. In my personal devotions, I was reading in Genesis 19 on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and I was prompted in my mind to think this is a foreshadowing of the judgment of God, the, the hellfire brimstone that rained down on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. And Lot, righteous Lot, was in the middle of that, in the midst of that. He had been given the choice to go this way or that with his relative Abraham, and he went and went to Sodom and Gomorrah and was dazzled by the world, though he was panged by it. And it, it shows this dynamic of him suffering as righteous Lot, but yet being kind of lulled into the malaise of that culture even to the point where the angels are trying to say, hey, leave, you know, get out of before God judges this city. And it says that Lot lingered there. 
There's a phrase where he, he lingers there. He wants to stay. His wife ultimately is going to look back and want it and long for it and be cursed for that. He's lingering there to the point where people are pressing in, trying to sodomize the angels there. And he's even tempted to deliver his daughters over to save the angels. So he's getting deluded in his mind. Abraham had tried to debate with the Lord. Are there enough righteous people there in chapter 18? Are there 50, 45, 30, 20, 10? Is there anybody righteous in this culture and God says no, but he spares righteous Lot out of that. Second Peter 2, 4 and 11 speaks of this. For if God didn't spare the angels when they sinned, the third of the angels fell, right? But cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept in judgment. If he didn't spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, this is the world that was met with a flood where God destroyed the world and that whole culture, but preserved the herald of righteousness and seven others, meaning his family. And then it says, but if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Sodom and Gomorrah is the example of future destruction. But he rescued righteous Lot. Lot who was distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Are you tormented in your own heart or are you lingering? That's the question I would ask you. Where are you? Where are you in light of the Son of Man's return? Have you given your life fully to Christ? Have you considered the cost of discipleship, what it means to lose your life for Christ? To become invisible in your identity and say, this is about Christ, not myself. Or are you lingering in the world? The Lord's rescue is here and it's through self-denial. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Or otherwise, you are still under judgment. The judgment that's coming by the Son of Man's return. There's an allegory called the Pilgrim's Progress. You've probably heard of it. And um, the picture is a man who is raggedly dressed. His name is Christian. And he was holding a book and carrying a burden on his back. The book represents the word of God and the warning to flee the city of destruction. It says flee it. And the burden on his back is the sin that he's still hanging on to. He weeps. He's crying aloud, crying aloud, saying, what must I do? He goes to his family, his wife and his children, explains them about the overwhelming burden of his sin. He explains to him how the promise and the warning of destruction that's coming upon the city is real and unless they discover some way to escape they're all going to die the man's family thinks he's delirious with a fever so they put him in a bed the next day he wakes up and he's no better he keeps warning his family about the coming destruction but they grow increasingly resistant they mock scold and ignore him ultimately he retreats in solitude and wanders away Seven billion people on the planet, they're all immersed in the malaise of media distraction. It's real. It's constant. It's a deluding spirit. It's, it's enough distraction for you to think that you're safe here to do nothing with Christ. Christ's return is, is coming. The great white throne judgment is real where heaven and earth pass away and everything's binary. Your name is either written in the Lamb's book of life or it's not. And the Bible promises that everyone will be judged according to their deeds. The judgment I want is the accountability of 
stuff being burned away ultimately and anything good that I've done, I just want to present it to the Lord and enter into heaven. Well, did, good, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Revelation 20 verse 15 says, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. This is not vagary. This is not dreamlike language. This is precise language of recompense for every sin committed past, present, and future that will ever be to your account. You say, well, how is this fair? Well, let's flip the script and remember the cross. That same precision judgment that that manifests the glory of God's justice is also met in the cross that if you give your life fully to Christ in faith, a commitment to follow him, guess what? Every sin you've ever been ever committed, past, present, and future, is absorbed in the cross. It's canceled. Colossians 2, 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, all of them, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And I love this picture. This, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. All your sins nailed to the cross. Every one of them absorbed, done away with. That's the gospel. And you don't realize how good that is until you realize how bad it would be to be on the other side. To be apart from Christ to be under this coming judgment. All of that's given to us. Joy is when we realize what we've been spared from. What have you been saved from? That's joy. But it goes to another level in verse 28, where we not only see what we're saved from or spared from, but we see what we're saved for. What are you saved for? Verse 28, this is what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. Now, first of all, this is kind of a confusing verse. And a lot of people have interpreted this a lot of different ways. But I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees. This is a promise that's made literally to people who are standing there, but it's a promise that's applied to all believers. All believers. We are promised glory. We're saved not just to miss wrath, but to also see glory. We are like Moses, those who long for the glory of God and say, show me your glory. A lot of people miss the blessing here, the blessing of what is said. It begins with the word truly. That is in the original language, the word amen. Amen. It's to say truly or amen to what I'm about to say. Amen, I say to you. There's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. In other words, believers get to taste and see that God is good. Joy is not only saying, man, I missed hell. I missed judgment. Joy is also, I see the glory of God. I get to know God. Personally, it's the son of man coming in his kingdom. But what does this mean? It poses some end times theology discussion here to try to understand what it means. Truly, meaning literally there's some standing here who aren't going to die. Taste death is always a literal death. 
You're not going to taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What does that mean? Well, some say this is just Jesus talking in terms of his first arrival. They're seeing um, Jesus speaking and his glory is there. Others see this as six days later, they're going to climb the mountain of transfiguration. That's chapter 17. It's the beginning of Mark's account begins with this same reference to those not tasting death, but seeing the kingdom. Jesus' resurrection could be included in this or his ascension after he's raised. He's going to go to the right hand of the Father. You have Acts 2, you have Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes and revival happens and people are speaking in known languages. Is that the glory we're talking about? What about the glory of wrath, judgment that's going to come upon Jerusalem at AD 70? A lot of people believe that where Rome comes in and sweeps everything um, and destroys that city. The second coming of Christ in the future, maybe those standing there represent another generation later when Christ comes and they'll see God's power in that way. What is he talking about? Maybe it's the reference to the idea that Jesus himself doesn't know the day or the hour that he's going to return, Matthew 24, 36. And so this represents Jesus saying, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back again, even in your lifetime. And Jesus didn't even know um, for sure what he was promising. I don't think that's likely at all. Um, Those not tasting death as a reference to immortals like Enoch or Elijah. That's what some people do with this. But I think if you just take it at straight um, face value, it's the most literal, obvious thing just to see what it says. Let's look back at the verse. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here. That means some that are literally standing under the hearing of Jesus' voice. Probably the 12 are, well, surely the 12 are there. And they're not going to taste death. Hebrews 2, 9 is a reference to tasting death where Jesus tasted death for everyone. That means literal physical death. So some standing are not going to physically die until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What is Jesus talking about? What is he talking about? Well, let me ask this bigger question because I want this to be applicational. Solving exactly what Jesus means for those people standing there who aren't going to literally die until they see glory needs to mean something because Jesus said it to them, to them, but he said it in light of all that he's saying for all of us to hear for all time and to apply this to our own lives. How do you apply this to your own life? And then we'll come back to those who are literally standing there. Um, You know, remember Jesus just talked about these suffering. He's going to suffer and die in Jerusalem They needed encouragement. And so the way that Jesus is encouraging those people is by saying, you're going to see me coming in my kingdom. You're going to see something glorious before you die. You need to be inspired for the mission. That's the context for this verse. This needs to bless the 12, but it blesses all of the church in a broader sense, even indirectly. How do we get there? You know, a lot of times we think about heaven as the ultimate goal, seeing Christ, but even that can become kind of esoteric or kind of out there in terms of something that really means something to us in our hearts to encourage us. Isn't that true? I mean, I long for heaven, but sometimes it's hard to get there as a motivator. Well, the first motivation is we've been exempt from the wrath of God. We're not going to have judgment come upon us. But we've escaped wrath to enjoy glory. How do we enjoy the glory of God? Well, 
I read a book um, a while ago. It was written in the 50s. It was by George Eldon Ladd, and it's called The Gospel of the Kingdom. And he describes the Christian life in this way. He says that the kingdom of God is um, experienced in our own life in two ways. It's experienced in our hearts, and it's, ex- it's, in- it's experienced in what we anticipate in the future. It's a now dynamic, and it's a future dynamic, a now and not yet. He calls it the already not yet principle. And you see it, once you understand already not yet thinking, then you can apply this encouragement to your heart. Now and not yet. It's kind of like Christmas Eve, you get a, a Christmas present, and that's the anticipation of Christmas Day where you get all your Christmas presents. It's what dynamic you have to have in your heart as you grow. What does this look like? What does this look like? Well, it's something that should build in your life. And C.S. Lewis put it this way. It's called the weight of glory. It's an immediate love, loving, joy-filling presence of God in your heart, in your life that you feel right now. Well, at the same time, you know there's a real future promise that's better to come. It's the weight of glory. In John 17, Jesus modeled this. He was praying before he was going to die on the cross. He said in verse 1, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, it said. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth and accomplished the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What is Jesus talking about? He's saying, this is eternal life, that I may know you right now. This is the weight of glory in your heart. You can know Jesus right now. You can talk to Jesus today. You can talk to Jesus where you're seated. You can, you can experience him now, and you should as a believer. But you're doing that in anticipation of a greater glory that you will one day experience in heaven. And that's what Jesus is modeling. It's now. I know you now. I've been able to do ministry now. I've been able to save people now here on earth. But I remember, this is his prayer. I remember what the glory was like before I came to earth. And I'm anticipating that coming again in my life. I have to go through the cross to glory again. This is what Paul talked about. He said in Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I suffer now and it's really hard, but I sense your glory because I'm anticipating something that's coming. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light momentary affliction and life is really hard, right? Trials are really hard and suffocating. But it's light momentary affliction in comparison. It's preparing me for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's really hard now, but you're with me now. You're not leaving me or forsaking me now. You're in my life now. I can access you and know you as my eternal life now, but it's in light of future glory. Ephesians 2, 5, and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, you made us alive together with Christ. By grace, 
You've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. I was dead in my trespasses. You made me alive. I'm alive. I know you. But it's as if I'm already at the right hand of the Father in my mind. I'm here. I'm living now. But I'm living in light of future glory. This is the same promise that Jesus was making to his disciples. Saying some of you, you're going to see some glory. I'm going to give you a taste of myself in glory before you die. And that's the encouragement you need to keep going in the Christian life. This is kind of a trivial example, but I kind of dug it up. It was the Stanford experiment that was conducted um, with children on delayed gratification. It was in the 60s and 70s. And it was kids that was called the marshmallow experiment. They were given a big marshmallow and they were told to sit there. And they said, if you can wait 10 minutes without eating that marshmallow, you'll get a second marshmallow. And so the instructor would say, okay, click. We're starting the timer and would leave the room. And half the room would eat the marshmallow. And then others would like, oh, strain and struggle and pull their hair and stuff like that. And then they'd get a second marshmallow. Those who were able to... Um, exercise the discipline of delayed gratification were the ones who were recorded later, 10, 15 years later, as markedly more successful than those who just jumped on the first marshmallow. It's the idea that in human nature, God wired us and designed us in a way where we can anticipate something. And within that anticipation, it builds and grows and gets stronger and stronger in our own hearts. This is the weight of glory, and this is a way that we grow in the Christian experience. What does it look like? Romans 14, loving others. Romans 14 is where Paul's saying, don't pass judgment on one another, verse 13. Don't do that any longer. Don't eat certain things. Don't drink certain things that would destroy other people's consciences because you love them. Verse 16, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Don't do something that's good for you that would be evil to somebody else. Don't put a stumbling block in somebody's way. Don't hurt people. Why? Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's bigger than now. It's talking about heavenly things. Colossians 3, 1 to 5. Why would you kill sin? It says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you've died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. So why, why do you do this? Why do you think up? Because you know that you're saved. And it says, when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You're living in the now. You know that you've died. Your life is hid with Christ and God. But you also know that Christ is going to appear with and bring glory. So then verse 5, in view of the now and the future, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Why do you kill sin? Because you know you've, your life is hid with Christ, you've died, you've been buried with Christ and risen again. All that is set. You know that. You have glory in your heart about that now. You're sitting here today to be reminded that you have glory now. You're, you're like, you have treasure in your heart. You're an earthenware, 2 Corinthians 4 talks about how we're this earthenware vessel, but we hold the treasure of the gospel in our heart. But we also know that Christ is coming and it will be greater. And so in light of that, we kill sin. How do you survive the loss of loved ones? Comfort. First Thessalonians 4, it's the same thing. It's the now and the not yet. Don't be uninformed, brothers. 
about those who are asleep, those who have already died. We don't grieve as if as others do with no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who fall asleep. We know we we know the gospel. We know he died and rose again. We know he's coming back. He's going to bring those who've already died and gone to heaven back with him. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who fall asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So, and so we will always be with the Lord. So, therefore, encourage each other with these words. What does that mean? It just means simply this. We grieve, we hurt, but we have an already dynamic. We know that we have hope in the Lord already, that those who have preceded us are coming back. It's the now and the future, the already and the not yet. You know, a lot of people believe a lot of things about end times theology. People believe, um, you know, in a literal thousand-year reign. Some people believe that's the beginning of heaven just in a broad sense. Some people believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, that you're going to be raptured before the seven years of, um, you know, all of what Revelation describes that's going to happen. Some people believe we're going to be, you know, raptured in the middle or raptured at the end. I can argue for a lot of different end times arguments, but don't miss the main point of thinking about the end. We think about the end because we are secure in it. We have the weight of glory in our hearts. We're secure in the Lord, and we know that he's going to return. That dynamic is what gives us the courage to go on. All right, so verse 28, who are the, the some that are standing here? Who are these people? I think Mark's account might help us. Mark 9, 1. This is just a cross-reference. It says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. When is the kingdom going to come in power? Well, kingdom comes in power when the witness of the Spirit comes at Pentecost, when the Jew and the Gentile are put in the church. The kingdom came in power when Jesus was there on earth. It was going to come in power when Jesus was, would be raised on the third day at the resurrection. It's the witness of the whole, um, the Holy Spirit going out over the whole world. And then there's a foretaste of all this on the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 17. So what is he talking about that some will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in the kingdom? He means that literally these people who are standing there are going to see all kinds of kingdom promises fulfilled within their lifetime. Seeing the power of God on display. You say, so which is it? Well, I think it's select circle D on the um, answer sheet. It's all of the above. It's all of the above. It's all of the above. The transfiguration is a foretaste of that, but it's the weight of glory in our heart that becomes really an anticipation of future glory. Weight of glory, W-E-I-G-H-T, turns into the weight of glory, W-A-I-T, waiting in our heart in anticipation. C.S. Lewis, he said it best this way for the weight of glory. The sense that in the universe we're treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. 
And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense described becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and a welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. Next week, we're going to go up the mountain with Christ and his select disciples, where in part, we're going to see this fulfillment of the glory of God on display. It's the weight of glory. 